Don't you love it when it tries to update everything right when you're getting on it? Like, come on, couldn't you have done that like this morning when I was sleeping or something? pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. As we come together as a community of faith, help us to see that we are one in Christ, at least we can be. And as we have that oneness, we can face all kinds of trials and tribulations outside of this building. We can face even persecution, and it will be like a baptism of fire that will bring us closer to you. So guide us as we unpack this this morning. Help us to see how we can be totally committed to Jesus Christ and to one another. We ask it to Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. This is a Community of Oneness series, and our first installment is called Baked Bread, how we are committed to Jesus Christ, and then that is, in a way, an aroma that permeates the whole book of Acts, people being committed to Jesus Christ no matter the circumstances. Tacitus, in AD 64, recorded a historical event. It was at the Circus Maximus near Mons Vaticanus. It's an interesting set of geography, if you want to do geography, because you have these buildings up on a rise overlooking the seven hills of Rome. And there in the midst of these buildings, you find almost like an ancient football field or, or carved out of the ground there, that this, this piece of geography where people would gather and there would be all kinds of events there in that circus or that arena overlooking the seven hills of Rome. And so you can kind of imagine maybe it's an evening there, and here's a picture from nowadays. You can see people walking down here. Uh, this whole area down here would have been the area where the, the circus would have taken place. Different battles being reenacted, different animals being wrestled or killed by gladiators or gladiators being killed by them. Uh, things that were fun, but also things that were very serious. And so you can imagine that all taking place down here and people up here watching these types of things. A modern event records that they had a concert there a few years ago, and 70,000 people were sitting there in that area at this concert. So it's a huge area. And so imagine it's evening, and instead of the usual spectator sports of gladiator fights and, and mock battles, sea battles, and all of this, you find instead you find torches being illuminating the night. Torches. People being attacked by animals beside that. And you're somewhere out in the countryside, and you can hear the screams, you can hear the yelling, you can hear the roars of lions consuming people. You can begin to see torches, because this would be up a little bit higher, illuminating the night. And as you approach that city and get closer and closer, there's a whole bunch of these illuminating the night. Not just one or two or three or four, but just many of these torches. And what are these things? As you get closer, you find that they are human beings smeared with pitch, illuminating the night. And as you had paid for that evening's spectacle, you begin to get sick in your stomach at the realization that your government would allow such an event as this to take place. Human flesh being seared, aromas going up in the night, the likes of which you have never smelled before, and there these people are, Christians, dying because their faith is different than yours. I'm not sure how this historian felt about it. We know, we know he at times made fun of Christianity, but 
he records this event there in A.D. 64. He says their destruction, Paul and Peter, was planned with the utmost precision and cruelty for the entertainment of the populace. The venue was Nero's Circus, that picture I just showed you, near the Mons Vaticanus, overlooking the seven hills of Rome. Christians were exposed to wild animals and were set ablaze, smeared with pitch to illuminate the night, living torches for them to look upon. The executions were so grisly that even the populace displayed sympathy for the victims. Separately, Peter was crucified upside down on the Vatican Hill. Paul was beheaded along the Via Ostiensis. But Nero's attempt and hope to shift all suspicion of arson, which more likely he had done, the arson of Rome, to others failed. His popularity, even among the lower classes who typically liked these grisly displays, was revoked. And so we find Christianity of flame in A.D. 64, persecution ringing out, Nero trying to stamp out Christianity, but failing. And what was the setting of all of this? What led up to that night or those series of nights? Well, it was during a time when Christianity began to lose favor in the Roman Empire. You find at first it could exist, coexist alongside Judaism, even be seen as a sect or a, a, a subgroup of Judaism. But as you get to A.D. 64, remember Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, and now we're getting towards rebellion is taking place in the empire. And so we find, since Christians and Jews have common practices, including the Sabbath, even though it's beginning to be questioned by some Christians, they're lumped together with the followers of Judaism. And since they're not part of any official recognized religion, then they do not afford the protections of the empire. So they're, uh, they're the objects of blame, of reproach, and in this case that we talked about, they're the scapegoats in the incident. Nero is blaming the Christians for the fires of Rome, and Nero is looking for an easy target, and his easy target, in his mind, are the Christians. Though he was probably the one who orchestrated this, the fires in Rome. And what's interesting about this whole situation is that these were not the first martyrs in history. We look at an event like this and we think, wow, how could that ever take place? How can a government ever get that bad? How could they just put Christians on display for their faith? Well, we're really not that far away from that ourselves. And as we look at the first century, there were more than just the fiery flames. We find Stephen himself was stoned 30 years prior to this in A.D. 34. And not only that, one of the unspoken realities are the others who died along with him. It's estimated that 2,000 others died along with Stephen. It says it this way, we are immediately told by St. Luke that there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, out of the book of Acts, and that they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. About 2,000 Christians with Nicanor, one of the seven deacons, suffered martyrdom during the persecution that arose about Stephen. 2,000 others. We hear the, of the great baptism after Peter's call to Jesus, but yet here we find 2,000 others being slaughtered along with Stephen. They use Stephen as an excuse to attack the others. James the Great, we find him around, we call him James, they call him James the Great in the Fox Book of Martyrs, but he's beheaded. We find him in the book of Acts around AD, 30, AD 44, they think. Philip, AD 54, 10 years later, scourge, whipped to the flesh was coming off, and then they crucify him. Matthew, they pin him to the ground, and then they behead him. James, they take him up off of, to a pinnacle. It's almost like they're reenacting what happened to Jesus. Throw yourself off. Well, they literally throw him off 
and they think that he's going to die, but he hits the ground, doesn't die, and so they begin to bury him in stone. St. Mark, this is the one that had the population up in arms a little bit. They took him and tied him up to the back of a horse, and they began to drag him, and then they would flip him over and drag him on the other side, and they would keep doing that until there was nothing left. Andrew, A.D. 70, or right before, crucified on this X-shaped cross for all to see, crying out the whole time, speaking to those around him to go to Jesus. Paul, later on, refers to us as Christians. He says, we are considered one bread, one loaf. What happens to one of us affects all of us. And so I can imagine what was happening to these individuals in Christianity was hitting, hitting the rest of the community of faith and saying, man, what can we do for the family? What can we, how are we going to stand fast if it happens to us? And it's affected the whole community of faith. The commitment of these few people giving their lives affected the rest. The point where Paul refers to us as one loaf. We're all in this together. We may think we're all a bunch of individual crumbs, but he's saying we're all one loaf. Later on, a Christian died, and as he was being burned at the stake, which is what our opening illustration was about, they said it smelled like baked bread. Artos in the Greek, showbread, or loaf, and hence the title baked bread, symbolizing a total commitment to Jesus that will stand even the fires of persecution. Do you have that commitment to him this morning? I mean, if you don't know him as your friend and as your savior, do you know what's going to happen in Jacob's time of trouble? Jacob's time of trouble, we were told about in the great controversy, our main problem is not what's happening to us, it's really how is my relationship with the Lord? Is there anything between him and I? And there's no point going into this if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior. If you don't know for certain that you would have eternal life, this is a scary episode to you. But for someone who knows Jesus Christ as a Savior, this is a reality that Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. I want to be able to see whatever happens to me from this day forth, whatever happens to us as we are bound together, even against the whims of the government and everything that's going to happen in this world, I want to see that it ends up being a blessing because it drew me closer to my Savior. And so as you look at the book of Acts, we can't just ignore these episodes and go right into all these powerful miracles and everything. It, the setting is one of persecution. The reality is that death did follow them. But also the reality is that their total commitment didn't fade. And so baked bread, am I totally committed to Jesus Christ? And furthermore, as I look at that episode in Earth's history, what words of encouragement can I find during A.D. 64 and 65? What words would encourage me during a time like that? Well, this writer of the book of Acts, we believe is Luke. He writes, we think, about A.D. 65, somewhere in that range, 64, 65. And he writes of a hope, a hope that says, Yes, you're a follower of Jesus. Yes, you're going this way, and, you're, and, and the world seems to be going this other way. You're a follower of the way. And there's some words of encouragement that Christ will be present through the Holy Spirit even in times of trouble. That your commitment isn't based upon your physical ability to go through it. Your commitment is based upon your willingness to have the Holy Spirit guide you through it. And so some have called this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we could call it that. But really what we're also looking at is 
this presence of Jesus, this total commitment to him in the book of Acts. This fiery presence is available. We start off in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Yes, that was quite an introduction, setting the stage for this verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which said he, you heard from me. He's pointing them back to some words that he had spoken, and that is, there is some, some, someone I'm going to send to you. Look at John 17. He talks about them being one, having a community of oneness, but he also talks about sending a helper, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide them in that process. And so these words are echoes of what Jesus had said earlier. Earlier, maybe in Bethany, where the Gospel of Luke records more details about this ascension promise. Can you imagine being there? I mean, that that picture doesn't really even do a service, does it? You know, the Gospel of Luke records these details. Imagine there you are, you're up on a hill, you're overlooking the the arid and semi-arid area around you there, the blue sky, the wind blowing upon you, and Jesus utters some words to you that will literally be of salvation purposes later on. He said to them, So it is written, So it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be proclaimed in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this is what Acts chapter 1 is echoing. We believe that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and so as he refers them back to the words of Jesus prior to Acts chapter 1, these are the words. And you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father on you, But you, sit in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. What's the promise? It's this power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, that's that picture we showed you, and lifted up his hands, he blessed them, and it happened as he blessed them, he withdrew from them, was carried up into heaven, and worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. As I read that, I thought of, my scripture that I was meditating on this week in Psalm 47. And this is, God's given me an infomercial here that you need to look at, I guess. <laughs> Psalm 47. It says, The Lord Most High is awesome, verse 2. He is great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves goes on in verse 5 of Psalm 47. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. And so I can imagine Jesus going up, and here's this king going up, like it says here in Psalm 47, verse 5. God has gone up. It says with a shout. It almost reminds me of the second coming, this trumpet coming down. Jesus goes up, and they receive him into heaven but this promise is still there for them. He blesses them. He's carried up, and they worship him, and I believe they probably sang praises, recognizing this was their king. He's not just going to be ruling this world. He's going to be ruling from heaven and still be their king. And they were continuing the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. That literally lumps Luke over to Acts because that same phrase continuing the temple, praising and blessing God. We find similar words in the book of Acts. You should really connect the two. So these are the words of Jesus. His reminder is, 
Jesus told you of a promise that no matter what you go through, you're going to have this power from on high. The world cannot access it. You can access it. And if you do, it will guide you through every life event. It will help you be totally committed to Jesus, even baked bread for him. And so they were to be clothed with power, power that would help them endure the trials, power that would enable them to endure fires of persecution, power that would help them take that message of the King of Kings to the nations. And since Jesus promised that, can you imagine every miracle that took place was a reminder that hey, Jesus is using, sending power through us? I mean, healing somebody. You look at your human hand, you look at your oil that you maybe put on it to touch somebody, and you think, what is there to that? It has to do with faith. Now, every year, we rededicate our home to the Lord. Last night, we did it. We took oil, we placed it upon the doorframe of our home. We say, Lord, this is your home. We are your children. This is your family of faith. And I prayed for each one of my children. My wife anointed me, and we, and you say, well, what's, what, what is there to the, as, I, as the oil was coming upon me, I thought, what is there to this deal? Who cares? It's just something physical, isn't it? But the sense of God's presence came over me. And it's almost like there was this searing feeling in my head where my wife anointed me at. And the thought came to me, it has nothing to do with the physical. It has all to do with the faith, the faith that I truly want God in my home, in my life. And so you can imagine every miracle that took place in the book of Acts, someone standing up and praising God when they're crippled, they would all say, this had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with any oil or any hand that I laid upon them. It's all Jesus. It's proof that Jesus is here. And if he's there in those miraculous situations, isn't he there also in the mundane situations? We think of the miraculous, but what about the mundane, those everyday occurrences? If we looked at them in heaven's eyes, they wouldn't be seen as everyday occurrences. They'd be seen as powerful interventions of God in human history. And so this is the promise, but you know what? Jesus had mentioned it a few chapters earlier too. So if we need further clarification, he says this in Luke 21, verse 12, but before all these things, they shall lay hands on you. He's talking about these signs of the times we, we refer to. Jesus' main concern isn't all the wars, rumors of wars, the, all the news headlines we're seeing. His main concern in Luke 21 is really the gospel going to all the world. His main concern in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 is this message about him giving the world peace. But there will be all kinds of troubles. But before all these troubles, these things, they shall lay hands on you, shall persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Didn't that happen in the book of Acts? Weren't people delivered up to the synagogues and put in prison? Bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Didn't that happen as well? Yeah, it happened in the book of Acts. It shall turn out unto you for a testimony. Get the idea of maturas or witness from this. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to withstand or gainsay. Didn't Stephen receive that? Yes, he did. They could not stand against the Holy Spirit who spoke through him. Acts 6, verse 10. But ye shall be delivered up even by parents and brethren and kinsfolk. Can you imagine that happening to you? Maybe even, some, maybe even someone that's closest to you, even closer than a physical family member betraying you. 
you're going to need that presence to go through that. Humanly speaking in and of itself, on your own, you will not be able to handle that. There are people who go insane, literally, because of people betraying them. It plagues them. Someone who loved me dearly stabbed me in the back. There's all kinds of songs about that, right? But here, Jesus says, you don't got to worry about that. I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom. I'm going to be right there with you through it. Even if you are put to death, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, and not a hair of your head shall perish, in your patience you shall win your souls. That's what our children's story is about, young people. In your patience you will win your soul. You will literally be able to have life evermore. I know we like this idea of not losing hair on our head, but uh, we'll come back to that in a moment as to what that might actually mean. So, Young people were FBI sheets. This is your answer there for, I believe, number five on your sheet. The rest of us will be looking it up in our Bibles. Isaiah 43, verse 2. An ancient promise that it almost seems like Jesus was hearkening to, or at least there was some allusion to it. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, verse 1. Isaiah 43, verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Who is this Lord? Who is this Creator? Jesus. Yeshua. Or L-O-R-D, you find in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You find this is the Lord Himself who made us. In your English translations, it's L-O-R-D. Like I've said before, uh, Yahweh, or you find some people say Yehovah. Uh, I know that Vinden um, goes that route. But nonetheless, the Lord himself who created you and formed you, fear not because he has redeemed you. He has called you by name. When you pass through the waters, verse 2, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for a ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. You were precious in my sight. I've loved you. I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you, verse 5. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not keep them back. It's almost like resurrection language here. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, I have formed. Yes, I have made them. Powerful. The Creator saying that though you feel like something is going to overwhelm you like a flood, I am with you. Though you feel like you're going to be consumed by the incident like a fire, I am with you. Young people, do you have that text marked down? They talk about Isaiah 43 too. And so there it is. Almost like the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, right? His presence. That's really the promise. Because you look at Jesus' own life, he talked about a baptism by fire that doesn't kill you, but actually enables you to even face death. And that was the same baptism in Gethsemane and at the cross. Look at Luke 12, 49. I have come to send fire on the earth, and what will I do if it's already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am pressed down until it is accomplished. You believe in Jesus, you've experienced a baptism by water. And if you have not experienced that, 
we are a Bible-believing Christian fellowship that will let you understand what that means, and I am willing to baptize you with water, so please see me. But if you have been baptized with water, then this is saying there is another baptism, because wasn't Jesus already baptized with water before he says this? Yes, he was. So what we find is this is a baptism through the experiences and trials you find in Gethsemane and the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A baptism of such that really when he cries that out, it's interesting that he also connects with heaven and extends and prays for us, his Father forgive them. A baptism the likes of which that can enable you in the hardest, darkest night of your experience to still utter a prayer to God. That's some, that's some power. People, if they, counselors could offer them that, they'd pay big bucks for that. And it's not just some placebo effect for your mind. It's real. A presence that literally feels like someone walking beside you like a friend through that incident. That's the baptism by fire. Not like Jesus is going to let you be burned up in it. He's going to be there with you. Didn't he say, I'll be with you in the water or in the fire? So he's going to be with you right through that experience, that trial. And that's good news, isn't it? That our own friend, our own Savior is going to walk with us through all of that. We have nothing to fear for persecution. We have nothing to fear for what this world is plotting. But the only thing we should do is be focusing on Jesus, totally committed to him. And those of you who uh, want to know what that means as far as not a hair on your head would be lost, you know, I'm losing some hair. I, I, my, my family has a history of receding hair loss. In fact, my grandfather, it just kind of keeps going further and further back. So this isn't telling me that I'll never lose any hair. Okay. Uh, because we know some people lost a lot more than their hair, did they not? James lost his whole head. Okay. And John lost his whole head. So we're not talking physically you'll never have any struggles and that you will never be harmed. We're talking about the rest of what that was talking about, which is you will gain something through it. If you lose your head... There's a resurrection day where it's going to be placed back, totally new, body new. It's this idea of trusting in God. Not a hair on your head will be lost means that if that's the case, God knows every hair on your head. He knows every experience you're facing. He's right there with you. His presence is there. And a baptism that fire will not hinder our salvation, a fire that will not hinder our salvation, you'll gain your souls. But I asked some questions. I had a young person come to me and say, well, you know, who really cares? Jesus is a myth. You know, he, he's like all the other myths of the first century and, and, and all of this. And I said, well, wait a minute. If people truly believed he was a myth, then why did they give their lives for him? How many would give their lives for Plato in the first century? I mean, you got a few people that like for Socrates or something, they would, they're willing to go to jail for it. But you don't find the masses going after these philosophers. And I pointed to this power, this power of Jesus, that even if it ends in death, I want it because there's a resurrection. The world says it's his power that ends in death, and yeah, you're going to have a good life now, but you're going to die in for this Jesus, and ha ha, then. You know, they, they can make fun of us then, but really, they can't. Because they've got no word to speak about thereafter. Whereas we do. We truly believe that it's not power that ends in death. We truly believe that it will help us endure for someone else. Whereas they won't endure trials and persecution for Plato and Shakespeare and all those writings, we will endure for these writings. Why? Because we truly believe it's about someone we dearly care about. We talk about the French Revolution and the two witnesses in, during the French Revolution, the, the Bible being cast aside, but really, it's about a message of Jesus that was cast aside. This whole book is about him. 
And I believe Jesus isn't just a dead person, not just some fairy tale like these other Caesar tales we find in the first century. In fact, uh, we find in the book of Acts, they truly believe in Acts chapter 1 that he would give the Holy Spirit to them. He showed also, he also showed himself alive after his passion or his death by many proofs appearing unto them by the space of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so Jesus showed himself alive. How many people does it take to prove he's alive? In their ancient culture, two or three witnesses would be enough, wouldn't it? But you've got more than that there. You've got people who say, I literally touched and felt and saw and ate with him and all of that. Hundreds of them. You've got the 12, you've got the 70, you've got, you got this other group, right? So you've got disciples who say, you know what? Jesus isn't dead, he is alive. And so because he's alive, I can live for him each day. Because he's alive, I'm going to gather and risk gathering together with other believers. You guys, you better enjoy this, what we have right now. This whole public worship experience that we have is of such value to me because think about it. Before it's all said and done, if you're truly remaining true to Jesus, you won't be here. The government will confiscate this building. People will come here, but there will be a, there will be a puppet here in the pulpit, okay? You will then be gathering at risk, the likes of which the book of Acts sees, the likes of which most Christians outside of North America see right now. And why would I be willing to do that if he's dead? If he's dead, then who cares? It's a fairy tale. I don't want to believe that. It's costing my, my family. It's costing financially. It's co it could cost me my home. It could cost me my life. Why would I do that for someone who's just dead? It's a fairy tale. No, you truly believe he's alive, don't you? And so they did that. They lived their lives because he was alive. They gathered at a risk. They proclaimed his message. And yes, they died for him, a risen Savior. And so... That power came from a risen Savior. One who, as you look here in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, when they had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up, and a cloud, which we'll see a cloud later on, the size of a man's hand at the second coming, received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly, where? Into heaven he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye looking into heaven? This Jesus who was received up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye beheld him going into heaven. What's the source of the power? A heavenly risen king. The one who's coming for each one of us. And so he is risen and not only is he risen and he didn't just rise and do a ministry here in this world. He rose and he went to heaven's corridor and we find that he's pronounced king of kings there by the angels and you find, he, wonder, who is this king of glory they say? And that's the one who's coming back. And that cloud looks like a cloud, but it gets closer and closer, and we see it's actually the angels surrounding him in a rainbow there around his throne. And that's the source of our power right now, where he is, where he's coming from. And just like I believe he's going to come in power, I believe he can come into my life each day and give me that power until he does come. And so Christ at the throne of heaven is my power. He's the source of power for a daily life. He's the one who gave them power in persecutions. He's the one who Stephen said, look, I see him. Where is he at? Up in heaven. Christ in heaven by faith then is the source of power for your life and for my life as well. These are encouraging words to people who are experiencing persecution, that they can go through it because of this power. 
Galatians 2.20 says, even if we're not going through persecution, we can be crucified with Christ and live through his power. But I live by faith, the faith which is in the Son of God. How much time am I spending focusing on him? I mean, you wonder why I just make a V-line for the cross and for Jesus during these sermons. It's because that's what I've been told to do and if, to lift him up. And so, I want you to think about him each time you come here. What is he doing for you? And if in your daily life you feel like there's a little bit of a spiritual thirst that's not being quenched, then focus on him. If you've truly been crucified with Christ, then then have faith in him. Focus on him. Look especially at the last few chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could take Matthew one week and read the last three or four chapters every day for at least five or six days of that week. Then the next Next week, take Mark, do the same thing. Then the next week, do Luke. And in a month, I bet you something's going to change. Those sins that so easily beset you, you're going to say, you know what? Jesus paid that price on the cross. And he's risen. And he's got that power for me. Nail that picture to the cross that keeps on overcoming you. I did it this morning, and I thought, wow. I can do that every day. And each day I can overcome. Until the Bible says, he who overcomes. And what's all those promises to the overcomer? Many promises to those of us who overcome. And if that doesn't work, then picture there's Jesus in the Old Testament language. There he is, liquid metal type burning power that he has, right? Eyes of fire. And there's your little Polaroid picture. There it is comes out of the Polaroid camera. I still remember some of those. And there it is in your hand. Or you like the digital kind? Or you took a digital picture and it came out of your printer. Okay, there it is. In your hand, that sin that so easily besets you. And imagine there's Jesus in his glory, in his fiery glory. What is going to happen to that picture? You're either going to hold on to it or you're going to focus on him. And as you start focusing on him, you start noticing the picture, the corner lights on fire. And it begins to go closer and closer to your hand. What are you going to do? You're going to hold on to it or keep looking at Jesus? What are you going to do? You're going to let go of it. Ment- I'm not saying these whole meditative weird stuff that's gone. Just mental pictures of saying, you know what, Jesus, what can you do with this problem? If that doesn't work for you, then take the promises of the Bible and post them on note cards wherever you face that temptation, and it'll remind you, I've got a crown of life. Uh, this isn't worth it. That's resurrection power. If that doesn't work for you, think of Moses. I mean, God came to him in a burning bush. He didn't have to imagine that one. Imagine there he is before this burning bush. Imagine God as a burning bush, and he's literally willing to burn up your problems. And imagine your problems begin to go up in smoke. And so we have a risen Savior who says you can be baked bread, totally committed to him, have a baptism by fire that will bring you closer to him. And because of that, you'll live and you'll die daily. Because of that, you'll eventually gather and risk. You'll proclaim. You'll even be willing to do this one. This one won't seem like anything because you've already had all of that. Is it easier to die for Jesus or to live for him? You're not going to die for him if you haven't lived for him. So we must die now in order to be willing to die later if it were to, if it were to come to us. That's why when it comes, some of them do waver a little bit. You find people who do waver there. But when they finally resolve, I'm staying committed to Jesus, they sing praises on those stakes. I don't know what, what could ever allow me to do that other than the grace of God. 
And so this is the Christianity of Acts, that Christ died to temptation long before Calvary. We then must be willing to die to our desires. That becomes like a pleasing aroma to God. And then if we were to physically burn, we would be baked bread for him. We'd be like the showbread in the temple. Daily giving honor to God through our aroma. And so that's why Paul says we're one bread, one body, and that bread is the showbread. And so being totally committed to Jesus is the aroma that permeates the whole book of Acts and because Jesus himself is the one we're committed to. How is our commitment level right now? Put aside a church health assessment. How is it right here? How much time am I spending getting to know this Jesus thing? If I'm willing to give my life, I say, oh, I'm going to give my life for you. How much time am I spending with him, though? How much time are we then spending in prayer together as a church family? How near to Jesus am I? Now, Polycarp was a faithful leader in the early Christian church. Interesting, I'm going to read this to you. He was later arrested by civil authorities. They, they, they tried to convince him that he was believing in atheism in a way. That an unseen God was like an atheistic belief to them. And Jesus was like that. And so they tried to convince him to renounce his faith. He refused because how could he ever turn his back on the God who had been with him all of those years? Here he is, an old man. And they record this story of Polycarp dying. It's the earliest record of Christian martyrdom outside the New Testament. And when he was martyred, one onlooker says it's almost like there was this fire was, was around him like an oven type of appearance. It's like it was all around him licking him, you know? And he, the onlooker, who probably became a believer, smelled something in the air. Not human flesh, but he smelled artos in the, in the manuscript. Baked bread, show bread. And you know, you don't have to be burned to be considered baked bread. Because look at Andrew. Now here, Polycarp had given his all in the worship to Jesus, but Andrew, after they tried to get him to recant, he said, as he saw the cross, O beloved cross, I have greatly longed for thee. I rejoice to see thee erected here. I come to thee with a peaceful conscience. Man, can you imagine having that? You know you're going to be crucified. You go, this peace. And with cheerfulness, Count it all joy when you face various persecute trials in James 1. Desiring that I who am a disciple of him who hung on the cross may also be crucified. The nearer I come to the cross, the nearer I come to God. And the farther I am from the cross, the farther I remain from God. I thank my Lord Jesus Christ that he, having used me for a time as an ambassador, now permits me to give this body, that I, through a good confession, may obtain everlasting grace and mercy, speaking to the others, remain steadfast in the word and doctrine which you have received, instructing one another that you may dwell with God in eternity and receive the fruit of his promises. After three days, he utters these, these words. And now, you could say this is a bunch of tradition, a little fairy tale story. But even if the gist of it is there, this idea of there he was being brought to the cross, ready to die on it because he loved his Lord, ready to say, nearer I come to the cross, the nearer I come to my Savior. You know, if we would all do that, it'd be like that wheel with the spokes in it. The nearer we come to Jesus, the nearer we come to each other. We all were coming closer to Jesus. Can you imagine then what this world would be like? The nearer I come to the cross, the nearer I come to my Savior. May we be kept near the cross every day. May we be that pleasing aroma. May we be this community of oneness that is not separated from Christ, but is drawing closer and closer to Christ each day and then we draw closer to one another. And so, why is this part of our series? Because 
baked bread means you're totally committed to Christ. If you're totally committed to Christ and I'm totally committed to Christ, then we will draw nearer to each other. Near the cross and nearer to each other. Our closing song is to that effect. You may have something that needs to be laid aside. You may have someone that you need to be closer to, that Jesus has convicted you to be closer to and to forgive or extend forgiveness. Whatever it may be, you may need to have Jesus as your Savior for the first time. Come near the cross. Accept Him as your friend. And He can change your life as you are totally committed to Him. Number 312, near the cross. If you'd like to stand, feel free. Yeah.
in heaven we're looking forward to that day when this king who's given us daily victories will come in the clouds of glory will rapture and snatch us up in that cloud of glory and these problems of this world will be done away with until then help us to be totally committed to jesus help us to be baked bread for him we pray in jesus name amen